Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker, a real estate investor, and director of economic research for a company called Rare Real Estate in Toronto. I'm joined here today by a wonderful young man that goes by the name of Nick Hill. <laughs> My name is Nick Hill. I am a real estate investor, a wonderful young man, and a mortgage agent. Is that, is that good, Dan? Perfect. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> what are we talking about today, Nick? Well, we're going to start off. We've got a really cool deal of the day, and then we're going to jump into Korea stats and really kind of a, a national outlook on what is happening in this market. But before we do that, our first stop today is in Victoria. Victoria is the capital city of the Canadian province of British Columbia, where I was born and raised. Beautiful place. It's on the southern tip of Vancouver Island off the Canada, off Canada's Pacific coast. The city has a population of just over 91,000 and the greater Victoria area has a population of just under 400,000. Victoria is the seventh most densely populated city in Canada and it has 4,405 inhabitants per square kilometer. I wonder who they named it after. Take a long shot guess here. I don't know. I mean, there's that Victorian architecture that was named after some lady that was mm. relatively famous named Victoria. The Queen. It is the one of the oldest cities in the Pacific Northwest with British settlement bringing or beginning in 1843. The city has retained a large number of its historic buildings, in particular two of the most famous landmarks, the Parliament Buildings, finished in 1897 and home of the Legislative Assembly of British Columbia, and the Empress Hotel, opened in 1908. The city's Chinatown is the second oldest in North America after San Francisco's. There you go. Some cool little some cool little facts. I would have never have guessed some of those things, like one of the oldest in the Pacific Northwest and the oldest Chinatown. Who would have thought? Victoria is known as the Garden City. It's an attractive city and popular tourism destination with regional technology sector that has risen to be one of the largest revenue generating private industries out there. Very interesting as well. What is also interesting is that if you're a home gardener like myself, you know that gardens are exceptionally expensive and Victoria being named after the Garden City might also be exceptionally expensive. The MLS HPI or house price index benchmark value for a single family home in Victoria in December of 2021 was 1.262 million. The benchmark value for a home by December 2022 increased 1.7% to 1.283 million, down from November's value of 1.3 million. Yeah, so you're basically at like 1.3 for a for a single family home. You know, there, it's funny because then we look at condos here with the same MLS HPI benchmark. Condos seem a little cheaper in the Victoria Core area than than I'd expected. December 2021 average price was 544,000. Well, the benchmark value for the same condo a year later in December 2022 increased 5.6% to 574,000 down from its peak in November at 587,000. From our friends at Zumper with the rent numbers, just for comparison here, because one of the things that we like to do is measure 
rent to price, income to price, to get an understanding for sort of how that that economy, that micro economy, that real estate economy functions. So as of January 14th, 2023, the average rent for a one bedroom apartment in Victoria, BC is $2,054. This is a 17% increase compared to the previous year. Yikes. Let's look at a two bedroom apartment. So as of January 14th, 2023, a two bedroom apartment in Victoria, BC, on average, it rents for almost $2,600. So $600 more than the one bedroom, and that's a 6% increase compared to the previous year. So after all of that, all of that good information, it's time to look at the deal of the day, which is, of course, in Victoria. And I love this street name, 1320 Pandora Avenue. Now, Pandora's Box, Pandora's Avenue, I don't know. Do with it what you will. Dan, you've got it up in front of you. Why don't you read the lovely MLS description for us here? Okay. Investors and developers, there's potential here to rezone for- Wait, sorry. Can you do it? Can you do it very accurately? Investors and developers with an exclamation mark after. I just have to sound excited. <laughs> Investors and developers. <laughs> There is potential here to rezone for higher density and achieve excellent rental return in the short term or hold as an investment property. There are three rentable suites with a two-bed, one-bath on the main level, a two-bed, one-bath on the lower level, plus a one-bed, one-bath garden suite, and there is ample parking. There is potential here to earn 60000 per annum in rent. The 6,000-square-foot lot is located currently zoned R2, and the adjoining lot of the same size has current rezoning and a building permit application with the city to redevelop to four townhomes. Okay. So that is pretty cool right there. Now let's just get some clarification on what R2 zoning in Victoria actually means. So this is an excerpt I found from a zoning bylaw. It reads, this change to the provincial level is a really important step towards densifying neighborhoods and doing so in ways that are keeping in with the scale of the residential neighborhoods. A lot that is over 6,000 square feet and zoned as R2, but which currently has a single family home on it, which is the one we're looking at, can be developed so that it has up to four units on this property. The semi-detached units, two units, each with a secondary suite in the basement or two lower, two more units, that increases densification fourfold and it does so without skyscrapers or buildings that will lead to serious pushback from neighbors. What are those neighbors called that don't like that kind of stuff again, Dan? NIMBYs. That's it. Although there's another one that I've learned about lately called bananas, which is build absolutely nothing anywhere, nowhere, anything. I think that's what it is. Yeah. (laughs) Banana. That's a good one. People are really going bananas out here. Now let's open Pandora's box and see if it reveals any, any secret rental returns. I like it. So why don't you walk us through some of the, some of the metrics here and then we can discuss discuss it afterwards because there is a cool play with this one that I want to go through. Yeah. So so you have it in as a, a 4.39% cap rate, which if I recall correctly from the Collier's cap rate reports and the CBRE cap rate reports, that's pretty well in line with what you'd be expecting from a multifamily perspective for residential investment in a market like Victoria. So I think that there's some some safety here. Cash on cash is is dismal. It's negative. So you're, you're burning money here, which sucks. And so I guess I'm curious to know what your play is to make this thing a little bit better. For sure. Well, I mean, even you're right, Dan, the first year, first year's tough, right? You're you're five grand in in the hole annually and at 500 in, in the whole monthly cash flow. So you're negative 100 bucks. Even if you look at the 10 year, the equity multiple 1.38, you know, the IRR 3, 3.11%, still not 
still not great. So tough first year. Cap rate's not horrible though, but let's look at the bigger pitch here. Maybe this is a hold for a year or two. Maybe it's a hold for a five-year mortgage term. And, you know, throughout that one to five years, you're getting the permits ready. And then you go and copy the neighbor and build four townhomes. Yeah, I think on average, a custom built home in Victoria is going to cost you 400 to 500 bucks a square foot and up, depending on a variety of factors, obviously. But based on the above estimate, to build a 2,300 square foot home in Victoria, BC, it would cost between 920,000 and 1.1 million. Yeah, now I couldn't find anything exact for Victoria on the average home building cost per square foot there, but let's go to Vancouver and use their numbers for production of a single family home, kind of more stock home plans. It's about 145 to 260. Custom built single families are about 430 to well over a thousand dollars. So I'm going to use $350 just as a, because we're probably going to do it, do it nicely. It'll be luxury, but not stock. So let's say it's $350 per square foot to build. Now let's choose a size. The average size of a single detached home in Ontario is 1,520 square feet. Actually, that's one of the biggest average sizes across the country. We now drop down about 100 square feet to 1,430 square feet, sorry, in BC, and even drop another 200 down to 1150 on the east coast of Nova Scotia. So at 400 uh, 1430 square feet and 350 dollars a buildable foot and four townhomes Dan, what's the math we have here? I guess we're at what 900k if you sell each unit for 900k you're at 3.6 million so almost a million in profit. I mean like there's probably a couple variables missing there. For sure. I think if you were to put that into the into the metrics, you're looking usually for a development project you're typically looking at a little bit more on an IRR basis than a cap rate or cash on cash basis, right? So yeah, totally. So, I mean, just the quick math there, 1430 times four times 350, get just over 2 million in construction costs. Now I just, you know, even adding 500,000 for permits, delays, changes, deficiencies afterwards, et cetera. If you've ever done any sort of construction, you know that these are, these are just part of the game <laughs> construction. So yeah, let's say you're into it for two and a half, even, even closer to 3 million and you sell each one for 900 K 3.6 million. And you know, it's not, that's not a horrible deal. It gets a lot more complicated than just buying a duplex and running that or, or, you know, buying a single family and putting a suite in there. This is a, a bigger picture type deal, but a decent one nonetheless, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I apologize. I didn't, I didn't jump on the math there real quick. Cause I was trying to pull up the Altus Canadian cost guide to see if they had Victoria and they don't. So they only have Vancouver, but, but you're pretty much bang on with the cost per square foot if we were to use Vancouver as probably a similar market, which I think, you know, yeah, Vancouver is probably a bit more expensive on the labor side, but I'm going to say Victoria is probably a bit more expensive on the material side because you have to get materials to an island, right? So yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Should we jump into the Korea stats here? I think we should. Yeah. Why don't I start things off here and then, and then jump in, Dan? So Canadian home sales edge up to the end of 2022. This is from the Ottawa release of the Korea stats on January 16th. The statistics released today by the Canadian Real Estate Association, that's Korea, show national home sales were up on a month-over-month basis in December of 2022. Yeah, so a few things here. So transactions moved up 1.3%. So they barely moved up into December. Bull market? Yeah, so so firstly, I'd like to say that I, I hate that Korea calls transaction volume home sales. 
because I think it really confuses people. Like you could have used a number of different monikers to, to describe the number of homes that sold in a month. So for the purposes of this episode, home sales means volume or the number of sales. So I'm just going to say, you're typically going to hear me say volume because volume and price are the two metrics. They call it home sales and home price. And I, I just, I don't really like that. But anyway, Nick, give me the highlights from this report. Yeah. And we're talking volume, turn it up to 11. <laughs> Let's go. That's from Spinal Tap. If anyone's ever seen that great movie. Let's look at the highlights. National home sales rose 1.3% month over month in December. Dan, walk us through that. So it is surprising to see more sales in December than November. It's very rare. And from my perspective, Mm -hmm. this could be an indication that we're starting to see some opportunistic buyers entering the market. And what I'm hearing on the ground in the market supports that. It sounds like there are a lot of buyers with cash waiting on the sidelines for the right time to enter the market. Now, actual not seasonally adjusted monthly activity came in 39.1% below December 2021. Dan, walk us through what that means and why that's a fairly shocking number. Yeah, this is the kicker for me. It's nice to say volume went up slightly into December and you know you can always rely on Korea to have a relatively bullish narrative in their in their headlines. They after all, they do create these reports for real estate professionals who are primarily bullish. But we're still down almost 40% on an annual basis. Volume is really low, like really, really low, well below the 10-year average. And this loops into Korea's forecast, which we'll get to in the second segment here. And we're going to kind of bounce back and forth because they do put a a forecast out on a quarterly basis and then they put a a monthly statistical analysis out. Yeah, I mean, just just a little anecdote here from from all of my all the realtors I speak to. This and all of my buyers right now. I mean, I've got I've got twelve people, twelve clients on the mortgage side, and that you and I are working with some of them jointly on the mortgage and real estate side. The one thing, there's no inventory, right? There's no volume. There's not a lot of housing stock out there to actually be purchased. So, and that brings us to the next point: the number of newly listed properties dropped six point four percent month over month. Yeah, I don't, again, like, I don't necessarily know if that's a super meaningful stat from my perspective. Inventory scarcity is definitely a theme, like you said. We are seeing less and less inventory available, and that could be what's creating stability in price. It could be what's creating maybe even potential upside in price because we are not in an oversupplied market. But listings always drop off in December. What the surprising part to me is that we saw more sales in December than November. But yeah, I think seeing inventory decrease into December isn't super notable from my perspective. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. The MLS HPI declined by 1.6% month over month and was down by 7.5% year over year. Dan, what are your thoughts on this? So we're back to seeing monthly declines in the house price index where it seemed relatively stable. And this isn't a big decline by any means, but if you take that out over an entire year, if that 1.6% continued, then you know, you'd know you be looking at the mid, you know, like a 15% decrease decrease or almost 20% decrease on an annualized basis. Mm-hmm. I think we're now 10 months in a row of declines and, and starting to see these year-over-year declines materialize, which from my perspective could have a negative impact on sentiment. So to me, there's really only two things that drive the market. One is liquidity and two is sentiment. And I think once the media gets a hold of these kind of gloomy data points and starts sensationalizing them, that could really bring down that sentiment piece, which is sort of the next kind of leg 
that there is downside risk in the real estate market from my perspective. We've seen the quantifiable side is borrowing power has been decreased. We haven't seen the qualitative side. So we've seen the quantitative, we haven't seen the qualitative. So if you've been following us for a while, you know we've been talking about seeing year-over-year decline since we started this show in May of 2022. But if you're new here, we've so far been relatively correct in our forecasting. So I'll try to put a bit of forecasting in here as well. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And you know what? That's a great segue into the final highlight here. The actual, again, not seasonally adjusted national average sale price posted a 12% year over year decline in December. To the point that we're now at the biggest year over year drop in house prices since 2009 at a national level. So if you look at the aggregate composite MLS HPI chart or house price index chart. Last month, we were on par with drops comparable to the slower markets like 2018 and 2019. Now we're really starting to see that year over year drop materialize more. And and you can see that in that chart I just mentioned on, on the Crea Stats link in the show notes or on Patreon if you're watching our episode screen share videos, which are exclusive to subscribers. It only costs nine bucks a month. And some people find it helpful just to click along with a lot of the charts that we're referencing. For sure. And just on that, we're adding several other features to that deal of the day and possible some other stuff, maybe access to to some deals that Dan and I are working on actively. But anyways, let's keep this party going and talk about quarterly forecasts. Okay, so Dan, I'm going to jump over to the quarterly forecast now. Well, we're still talking about real estate prices. Yeah, it makes sense. We can jump back to the monthly Korea stats to discuss prices across provinces as well. Okay, perfect. Here we go. This is the official release from Korea again on January 16th. The extent to which some 2023 figures have been revised from the previous forecast reflects a change to publication dates, which has allowed an additional full quarter of data to be included in the forecast. That's a great thing because that's one of the issues that we always have, Dan. We say, you know, it's a lagging indicator and there's not enough data to really get some true data points on stuff. Yeah, especially with government reporting agencies. Like we know CMHC data is lagging. So you're trying to make decisions in real time, but you're using information from six months ago. It's like it does, it's it's really hard. And this is why people rely on professionals, realtors, et cetera, because you need that that boots on the ground exactly to really give you that that real real time market insight. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I wouldn't even say just hard. I'd say, uh, if anything, just a little misleading. You know, I mean, like you, you're you're looking at stuff that's already happened and trying to base a decision off of the past when the f- when the present is is changing rapidly. So, as a result, this forecast is populated with an additional six months of data. Yes, compared to the previous forecast published in September of 2022, which we also covered. National home sales have been more or less stable since the summer, suggesting the downward adjustment of sales activity from the rising rates and high uncertainty maybe in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I think that does sound a little bit like wishful thinking to me. A little bit, yeah. Just based on the research we've done about housing market corrections and price declines, I do think I will admit the worst is behind us. I think we won't see those high-speed velocity declines in house prices, but I still think that there's room for a little bit of a grinding down we have seen, you know, in in the past as the market trades sideways for a few years and adjusts to those new mortgage rates and it's going to feel like a sideways market. If you take that out over the 2 to 3 year period, it's going to take to recover, you know, it it looks flat, but it won't feel flat when you're seeing prices decline slowly or increase slowly. Yeah, totally. And again, none of this is a one size fits all. We live in a very big, diverse country. So home prices remain mixed across Canada with significantly higher borrowing costs. It's not surprising homes have mostly cooled from their peaks in more expensive markets within Ontario and British Columbia, of course. 
Prices have been holding up much better in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland and Labrador with Quebec and the rest of the maritime provinces landing somewhere in between. Well, prices in most markets have declined from a short-lived sharp peak early 2022, they remain well above where they were in the summer of 2020. With the shock from the Bank of Canada's efforts to control inflation fading and uncertainty about the path of the housing markets, where borrowing costs will ultimately land, likely to wind down over the next few months, the theme of our 2023 forecast is not recovery, but the start of a turnaround. I like that. That sounds a little more realistic right there. Sounds like a bottom. Sounds flat to me. Yeah, I think they are definitely getting more realistic with their forecast. That's, I mean, that's good. You do get like a lot of these reporting agencies, the Bank of Canada, the Economist as well. It's like, I put out a meme the other day. You know how like designers are always like, you're editing a file and it's like, essay, final, final, final. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, that was good. It does feel that way with economists saying, oh, this is the last rate hike, right? Like, I think the last three rate hikes have been called the last rate hike. They were all the last ones. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so now we have the upcoming last, last rate hike, but I think it is like, it's easier to ease into the narrative, I think, you know, and be wrong rather than causing panic. And so I do think you get a little bit of an element of that there too. True. And and to be honest, out like, you know, no fault of, of Korea's they're, they're only doing what they, what they're only reporting on what they can hear. Right. I mean, they don't, they're, they're not making the interest rate decisions. They're not commanding the market. They're simply reporting on it. So for sure, it will likely remain quite difficult for many first time buyers to enter the housing market until mortgage rates are lower than they are today. When Dan actually, I'm going to stop that there for a second because someone said on a on a space that we were on yesterday, someone said very a very interesting point that I'd like to do a full episode on. You know, is it the mortgage rates that are the problem, or is it the housing prices that are the problem? And I think that deserves its own episode, so we'll leave that there. Yeah. That being said, some buyers are expected to come off the sidelines once they have more certainty that rates have at least topped out. So maybe people will start buying again when they're like, okay, we know that when we see next week on January 25th, whether it's a 25 basis points or 50 basis points, stop it there. Let the lenders adjust. Some new products will come out that are, that are half decent within that range. And, and maybe that'll, you know, maybe that'll cause sentiment to shift a little bit. Others will likely find 2023 the first opportunity in some time where they're not having to compete with multiple offers. That's awesome. That's a big takeaway from my perspective for investors. Yeah. If we're buying duplexable, triplexable product, competing with end users, competing with the the marginal buyer who isn't as experienced, you know, is has a higher willingness to pay, has qualitative reasons to pay more for a house, that's hard to be an investor and to be competing with first-time home buyers. And so if we're heading into a market in 2023 where there's far less competition, that's for me, creates a subjective opportunity for real estate investors. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So not a good thing, we're seeing lack of multiple offers again, which is great. I mean, we're not seeing that in some places. Again, there was an, a home in Oshawa that had 36 offers yesterday and sold 250 grand above above asking. I think that was a bit of a play. Those are outliers though. Exactly. Those are outliers that skew the stats. The other thing I want to mention that that's great to see a return to, and this is this is word from the streets. So I, Dan, we were looking at a, a large multi-unit the other day. Unfortunately, that deal just fell through. Twenty-unit building up in Sudbury, and we had a, an inspector that was supposed to come up and do it with us. Things fell through with him, so I had to scramble and and you know call every inspector up in the Sudbury and North Bay area to see if we could find someone within twenty-four hours, and. You know, remember two years ago, inspectors were not really doing much. They were they were probably the least busy guys in in the real estate industry. Now I'm talking. I talked to probably six or seven of them. They're all booked up. They're all busy. So good to see things getting back to where they should be. 
Anyways, some 496,000 properties are forecast to trade hands via the Canadian MLS system in 2023. That's only a 0.5%, so half a percent decline from 2022. That's that's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad, actually. The national average home price is forecast to decline by only 5.9%. Now, remember, that's that's annualized, or sorry, that's the average across the country to 662,000 in 2023. It's important to note that based on the monthly data under the surface, that decline has already happened over the course of 2022. However, the record setting start to that year will be reflected as the decline this year as prices are not expected to be anywhere near those record levels in 2023. Thank the Lord. <laughs> Let me jump in here with a couple of charts from the Crea Stats page to expand on that price a little bit. And it shows how much it shows a lot of things, but and it'll really show that the differentiation on a market by market basis, which is why it's so crazy to talk Canadian real estate from coast to coast. But it'll also show you how much the national average can be skewed by two provinces and, you know, where prices are very high. So the dollar volume is high and it, it has the ability to skew. And there's a lot of people in a lot of houses. So there's a lot that they, it can do to pull. It can put a lot of pressure on these these statistics here. So looking at the chart that says residential average price, year-over-year year percentage change December 2022 versus December 2021. BC is down 12%. Alberta is up 3%. Saskatchewan is down 4%. Manitoba is up 1%. Ontario is down 13%. Quebec is barely down 1%. New Brunswick is barely down 1%, although that would be down quite a bit if you adjusted for inflation, so if you're accounting for real house prices. Nova Scotia is down 2%. This is where it gets crazy. PEI is up 16%. Newfoundland and Labrador is up 10%. And yet somehow Canada is down overall about 12%. And, and this is a magnitude issue in the data. And one of the reasons I prefer to use median prices rather than averages, there are so many houses in Ontario and BC that the prices were so much higher and dropped so much further that they can actually skew the national average down that much. Yeah. Okay. Now, Again, reading from the from the Korea forecast here, let's dive back into this. National home sales are forecast to rise by 10.2% to 546,625 units in 2024 as markets continue to return to normal. This would still be below the 2020 and 2021 figures. The national average home price is forecast to recover by a moderate 3.5% from 2023 to 2024 and get back to around 685,000. That is below 2022, but back on par with 2021. So that, that seems to be you know headed in the right direction if Korea is correct on this. Interesting note on volume. If you look at the volume chart on the Korea Stats website, so it's the it's the main chart on stats.korea.ca for which is in the, linked in the show notes and for those following along on the Patreon screen share, you see a bouncy red line with a black line going right through it, and that is the ten year monthly moving average. It shows volume back to two thousand and seven. So right now, volume is well below the 10-year average. If you look back at major periods of economic uncertainty, you can see that Canadians respond to economic uncertainty by pausing purchase decisions. 2008, there was a huge drop-off in volume, but then it rebounded afterwards really hard into 2009 and traded way above the average for almost a year. So I think that they could be right on the volume forecast here. I just wish they called it volume, not monthly home sales. 
<laughs> so you're saying maybe we expect a slow year of sales this year, 2023, and then likely a rebound in activity for 2024? Yeah, exactly. Okay, but what is what's that going to do to to prices? How does that relate to the prices we're seeing? So this is where it gets tough to say. There is economic market psychology that shows that volume can be positively correlated to price. This is where you hear about buyer's markets and seller's markets. This means that if volume goes up, price goes up. Volume is your demand. If volume goes down, price goes down. And volume can be an indicator of demand. So if there's a lot of houses selling, that usually means that there's a lot of people looking to buy houses, which means that there's excess demand, which means that it's a seller's market and prices can rise. On the flip side, as we're seeing now, if there's not a lot of houses selling, there's not a lot of demand, and therefore there's not a lot of people competing to buy the same thing, and that's when we can get into a buyer's market and prices can fall. Now, what about the residential market balance? I think there's another chart in the Creostats that shows us demand as well, and that this chart shows two different metrics that can be used to measure yeah, you've pulled the chart up, Dan. Thanks. So months of inventory and sales to new listing ratios. I hope you're going to define those for us, Nick. Is this a Nictionary segment? I think it might be a Nictionary segment. We need like a little theme music for the Nictionary. Like what's <laughs> da, that da, reading da, rainbow? I know. <laughs> the number of months of inventory is the number of months it would take to sell your current inventories at the current rate of sales activity. So the number of months it would take to sell your current home at the current rate of which sales are happening. With a more balanced market, homes spent more time on the market in the fourth quarter of 2022 than they had the year earlier. So if you look at months of inventory, you can see it's been climbing since January of this year. This means that there's more and more inventory piling up. So we could be moving towards an excess supply situation, telling me that prices could continue to fall a little bit throughout the year in line with Korea's forecast unless demand comes back, which it seems to have stabilized a little bit, let's say, based on the sales to new listings ratio. So we're currently just getting over four months of inventory. Now, this is a metric that's commonly used to kind of assess what kind of market we're in, right? Whether it's a buyer's market or a seller's market. Yeah. So less than three months of inventory would be a buyer's market. Homes may appreciate in that market. The market was in the state basically from July 2020 until July 2022. Right. So greater than six months of inventory would be considered a seller's market and home prices may depreciate in this type of market. And we haven't really seen over six months of inventory in Canada in a while. Last time we saw close to six months was in 2017, 2018. And by and large, those years were definitely behaving more like a buyer's market. This is why I have a bit of a beef with this metric. I would probably make that cutoff five months of inventory that would make it a buyer's market, maybe even four months of inventory. Okay. And between those two, let's say three to six months, you've, you're, you know, you'd be in a balanced market. And this is where homes tend not really to move in price. If anything, they are growing, keeping up with the the rate of inflation, whatever that may be. Yeah. And so this is where I have a little bit of a beef with months of inventory as market temperature or market balance metric. I think that we just pushed through that three month earlier in this year, and we're now hovering above four months of inventory range. But the market is acting like a buyer's market. Prices are in decline. So I would say that your seller's market would be three months, balance would be three to four months, and buyer's market would be greater than four months of inventory based on how the Canadian real estate market behaves. 
Yeah, I, I like that. But I guess a lot of the economic real estate theory that you know we discuss and that Canada probably uses comes from the US where markets aren't nearly as tight as Canada, which is literally the exact reason that we exist to try to help everyone understand. That. And there are a ton of amazing podcasts in the US about real estate, but it's so different there, right? They have different laws, different prices, different lending regulations, different legislation, different building codes. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the bigger portion of it. And I also think that this buyer and seller's market theory comes from a real estate market where the flow of information was much slower. So until about 15 years ago, real estate wasn't a product where you could easily shop for it online. And I think the flow of information and the speed and the increased efficiency of the transaction process has also shortened the sales cycle. And it kind of makes those months of inventory, buyer's market and seller's market metrics a little bit skewed or or less relevant. And so this is why I prefer to use the sales to new listings ratio as a market temperature metric. Sales to new listing ratio? Dun, dun, dun. The dictionary. The dictionary. <laughs> okay. That was not planned, but that was pretty good. We got to we have to come up with something better though. Sales to new listing ratio. We've talked about this a bunch in, in other broadcasts, but just a quick reminder, it is the number of existing home sales divided by the number of new listings entering the market. So it's used as an indicator to assess possible overheating in an existing home sales market where demand is relatively strong to the supply side, house prices typically grow at a faster rate. Yeah. So sales to new listings ratio is probably my favorite metric to capture demand in real estate because it looks at supply and demand in real time. Basically, it tells us demand, how many properties sold relative to supply, how many properties listed. So to determine if we're in a buyer or seller's market, let's just do a quick little recap here. In a seller's market, the sales to new listing ratio is generally at about 60% or more, which translate to six or more sales for every 10 new listings. In a balanced market, the ratio is between 40 and 60%. And in a buyer's market, you're looking at fewer than four sales for every 10 new listings. Below 40% being a buyer's market, which translate to four or less new listings for every 10 new listings. Yeah, so four or less sales for every 10 new listings. So, And looking at the chart, you can see that we were in a strong seller's market basically from July 2020 until March 2022 with the sales to new listings ratio anywhere between 60 and all the way up to 90%. And then the sales to new listings ratio started crashing after that, basically down to 50%. And we've kind of hovered around that 50% range since last summer, but the months of inventory element is still just starting to catch up. Like you can see that steep drop on the chart and then months of inventory just starting to climb after that drop happens. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at this chart, you can blatantly, it it doesn't matter what chart this is. If you just gave me this as just like a a blank chart with no title, no nothing, you'd still be like, okay, what happened here? Yeah. (laughs) If there was just dates, there's, you know, on on the bottom, we've got dates in January, 2020, February, March, April, May, it looks like May here. I mean, something, something really strange happens. And then there's just major disparity from the sales to new listing ratio to the months of inventory. Or if you look at any chart, something went horribly wrong and something went horribly right. It reminds me of that website, WTF happened in 1971.com. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but it's literally like a, a bunch of charts. I haven't. <laughs> okay. So 
for anybody watching, and I think we're going to wrap up here anyways, but this is really funny because like you see it come up on social media all the time. So the website is WTF happened in 1971.com. And it's literally just a series of charts where starting in 1971, the, the correlations just got absolutely destroyed. So like there are two things that traded in unison until 1971. And some people argue, I think quantitative easing started around that time. Like there was a bunch of different changes to the monetary system, but it's like uh, okay. growth and productivity and hourly compensation since 1948, as an example, is the first chart on the website. And they're 90% at 1971. And they're basically in unison, like they're, you can't even really dif differentiate the two lines. And then compensation basically trades sideways. So people's wages don't increase at all. And productivity goes up what? Two and a half times goes up to 250%, 246%. Next one would be real GDP, real wages, and trade policies in the US, 1947 to 2014. Again, in 1971, basically all of those lines are just perfectly in unison the whole time. And then real GDP per capita, so the productivity of human beings goes to the sky. And then the bottom line, real median worker earnings. So basically the amount of money that they're paying people decreases substantially. Oh dear. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is like really that kind of like decimation of the middle class, right? Or the gradual erasure of the middle class that you can see happening. And there is, I've, I haven't even spent the time to go through every single chart in on this website, but it's literally like just crazy to see all of these different things that all began in 1971. So WTF happened in 1971.com. Yeah. What the F happened in 1971? That's a, that's a really good question. Before we wrap up here, Dan, I just want to air some dirty laundry here because I have been so fresh. So a couple episodes ago, I had mentioned I was appalled at having to spend 2000 bucks on a, on a new laundry center. I got over that pretty quickly because, you know, it needed to happen and, and appliances are just expensive. You know what? That laundry center was supposed to be delivered yesterday and I never got the laundry center. I never got a call. And then when I go to check in transit to try to follow it, it hasn't even left Home Depot yet. So supply chains are not fixed. No. Did you think about saying that you wanted to air some dirty laundry or was that just like, are you just so naturally punny? <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't even mean to do that. Really you just impressed. caught me. Wow, I am I am nat naturally punny here. You better make sure you don't got any kids walking around after a dad joke like that. Oof, there we go. But I swear, man, appliances have been the bane of my existence for in the last two years throughout COVID. The the amount of appliances I've ordered, I mean everything from fridges, stoves, laundry centers, etc., and not one of them has come in on time or without issues. And I have now gone to every single supplier. So sorry to throw Home Depot under the bus. We love you, Home Depot. I'm there all the time. But like Best Buy, Canadian Appliance Source, Lowe's, not one of them has been able to get me my appliances without any BS. And it's so frustrating. It's funny because I think appliances have actually been the bane of every landlord's existence for the last little bit. Like I just bought a brand new house, well, pre-construction many years ago. Mm -hmm. I've had problems with two of the appliances since it took possession, but my appliance package had to get changed twice because they didn't have stuff. So, I mean, I think that's like one of those things that was really evident that was a problem as a result of supply chain disruption. But also like because of that, the used market, like, I mean, as a landlord buying a lot of used appliances personally, and maybe that's a reflection of the type of product that I bring to market or whatever, but you couldn't get a used appliance for the past two years, like at least no, at a reasonable price, yeah. right? 
Man, I, same thing. It's not even a reflection of anything, right? I mean, like a, a refurbished appliance is, is just as good as a new one in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, they're durable goods, right? Exactly. And you can't find any of the used stuff either anyways. Well, it's worth, it is worth mentioning. I mean, it's it's valuable for landlords to know this right now, especially people who are wanting to yeah. get into the real estate investment space. I mean, appliances, it's one of those things where like you can't really say, hey, your stove's broken, like, sorry. I mean, dishwashers, because they do get broken a lot by misuse, often not replaced. Like you can usually write into the lease one dishwasher. You know, I had some student rentals in the past. Students are guaranteed blowing the pump on a dishwasher. Guaranteed. Oh yeah. They're not washing dishes. Well, no, but like they don't even rinse, like they don't have the life skills to know to rinse the the dishes before they throw them in there. Right. So, but you can't like a thing, like a stove, fridge, all of these things, like you can't really laundry. You can't really, in in Ontario, actually, like anything that's plumbing related is a really big sticking point because it's written as a separate type of clause within the landlord and tenant act. So appliances are are one of those things you you can't live without. Like you really, it's got to be replaced promptly and we don't have the resources to replace them promptly or affordably over the last little while. So it's worth discussing. That's what I mean. I, and it's brutal because now I'm back and forth with my tenant. I so much so that I sent her I sent them a screenshot of my my delivery page where it was supposed to be there. And I'm like, look, you know, I'm not yeah. I'm not lying to you. I trust me, I'm dealing with this and it's frustrating. So anyways, to end this episode on a frustrating note, I appliances, why yada yada. Yeah, if anybody knows how to solve that problem or if maybe any appliance company or supplier wants to hook us up with some some guaranteed delivery dates or something like that for ourselves and all of our <laughs> listeners, consider this our sponsor me tape. Love it. Or like those those old skater boy tapes you used to send to like random companies. No. <laughs> I've never sent one of those, but I kind of know what you're talking about. Yeah, like a sponsor me video. Like I'm thinking like Ryan Sheckler. Like that was like the first advent of like YouTube. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, sponsor us LG or or whoever makes a, you know, the most appliances out there. Literally anyone. Anyone. We'll take it. Just please get them to our tenants on time, please. Yeah, I don't even want them for free. I just want them delivered. I'll take it for free though. Anyways, enough of that. Thanks so much, everybody. I'll keep you all posted on this very suspenseful laundry situation here. And until next time, thanks so much for listening. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.